Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. An overview of the uh, things that we are going to be taking a look at in this particular section of Imor. Um, what this is a part of is a part of the instructions on living as the other in society. That's the other means holy, meaning separate, meaning put apart for a, for a separate and special purpose. So uh, one of the things we're looking at in Leviticus 21 uh, and 22 is the otherness of the Kohanim, the otherness of the priesthood. And one of the things we see there is that the priests are supposed to be separate. You know, we always think, oh, this stuff is just archaic. Well, what do we talk about every time there's an election season? Image. You want to say, look at your political image. Why? Why, why do people care about political image? Because, yes, Piran. Past performance indicates future. Past performance indicates future returns because the image or the name of somebody, their political name, is what you can expect them to do later, which is why people are, don't do themselves any favors if they just live in a completely, um, you could say, roller coaster life, bouncing back and forth between all kinds of different positions because no one actually knows who you are. And that is one of the things of the priesthood. The priesthood is supposed to be modeling, demonstrating the otherness of God. So thus, they are called to, to do that. They are called to demonstrate the otherness of the Lord and the kingdom of heaven. So, thus, you see that there is a higher standard. You know, you've seen people that have criticized the word of God and said, well, this is completely not fair that someone who's got some sort of deformity can't go and, and do service and this and that. And you'll note that it says in this particular passage, well, if you're of the priestly family and you have something that makes you have some sort of deformity, you can still eat of the offerings if you've gone through everything else to make yourself live that other life separate. But the modeling of what the role of the priesthood is, is saying that this is something of some other otherness. Now, we talked earlier in the construction of the tabernacle that the tabernacle is to be a view of going back to Eden and going toward the dwelling place of God where the Ark of the Covenant is, is that goal of all humanity to be able to walk with God in the garden again. That's something that we all strive for, which is why Hebrews brings it up and makes that a big deal in chapter 9 where it talks about that we have a way through the veil. Because now we see, ah, we are now one step even closer to 
that dwelling in the garden and walking with God yet again. So we see that the priests and the offerings are symbols of this perfection, the perfection of the creator's realm. That's something that's completely different, something that we are returning to. You know, one of the, one of the things that is currently going on among believers who are also astute watchers of God's creation, um, otherwise known as scientists, they are looking at the world and saying that this line that we have been fed for over 150 years, that the way that the world works and the way that the natural order works and the way that creatures work and the way that things adapt is, you could say that it's basically the blundering, the blundering of biology. And it just blunders from one thing to the other and thus is able to advance. But rather, what is one of the hallmarks of modern society, especially our modern advanced society? Computerization, automation, our great cars and stuff like that. What is all that based on? Blundering? No. Intent, forethought, planning, etc. Planning, looking ahead, anticipating problems and trying to solve the problems, putting things into place. Well, when we've learned more about the world, the biology, and the realm of the universe and stuff around us, what have we learned? Is this an example of blundering? Rather, it is an example of forethought. So thus, what we're seeing about these, these instructions for the priesthood is reinforcing that the world of God is other. It works in a very controlled and forethought and um, put into perfection as much as possible. Yes, our bodies have problems. Yes, our bodies have defects because the creation has been going downhill since the creation, since it has been detached from the creator, headed downhill. But... We have that hope. We have that hope just like it's foretold in the prophets of the Messianic era, just like we see in Revelation where it's foretold that the dwelling place of God is with mankind, that the new heavens and the new earth, that these things will be different. They will be different from the way things are now. No more sickness, no more pain. Yes, Pure Ann, we have a, a comment or a question over here. I think this week was the anniversary of the cloning of the sheep in Scotland. Oh, yes. Dolly. And then I think of space exploration. So I think what we've been trying to do is be God, or at least say that technology can do the same as God's creation. Just be a little defiant about acknowledging the, the creator. Yeah. Well, there is the, the way that you can explore that while being respectful for the, the creator. But then there's also the way to explore the creation while being disrespectful of the creator. For example, you know, one of the things that we're fighting about in society right now, where it is very obvious how humans reproduce, yet you'll have people that will fight against that and say, no, it isn't. And no, it can be something else. But 
Sadly, that's not reality. That's not the reality that we see around us. The reality that we see around us is rather what we see revealed to us from the Creator. Yes, thank you, thank you, Piran. So, one of the things that we see in Leviticus 23, kind of we'll be hitting this, this in more detail, but these are the festivals. These are His festivals. These are not the Israeli festivals. These are not the Jewish festivals. These are not the Christian festivals. These are His festivals. Meaning that something that we see like in Isaiah chapter 1, where he says, I hate your festivals, that shows that there is a problem. That there is a problem. That this otherness, that treating the otherness of the kingdom of God, which was what the instructions were about, (laughs) that is not being respected. Just like we were talking about with biology, you're not respecting the creator of what you see around you. So. Rather, you're trying to rebel against it and say, no, no, that isn't so. It's the way I want it to be. So, thus, you are trying to worship God in a different way, the way that the nations around you do. And also, worship and approach God when your, your desires, your intentions, we call it your heart, is far from him in a completely different direction. Because what is, what is the thing about you know, worshiping, approaching God? We see this exemplified with all of the tabernacle and all that we've read so far in the book of Vayikra, Leviticus. All that we've read so far about this is expressing that this is a place of the other. This is a place that is different. So we cannot drag in the stuff from how other people are worshiping their deities, their, as Paul calls it, their so-called gods. We can't drag that stuff in and say, well, this will help us get to know God better. Well, who are we actually getting to know? More likely than not, the remnants of whatever practices and ideas that we're dragging in from some other deity. And we see that today when people are trying to make the, quote, gospel more relevant, unquote, make the Bible more relevant, unquote, and they drag in ideas from the outside that speak of a completely different type of God, the God of the blundering, meaning the God that used evolution to create. Now, is not the God of the blundering. If anything, what we see with the priesthood and the tabernacle is the God of the forethought, the God of the planning, the God of the perfection, the God that made things very good in the beginning, made things very good. Now, we ourselves, our bodies can become not very good over time. Our behavior can be not very good. What does that then indicate? Remember Romans chapter 7? When I compare myself to the law of God, what do I see? I change the law so it fits me and you know, makes me feel better? No. I look at it and go, what wretched man I am. Who can save me from this body of death? So whom then must change? 
God change? You just rewrite God? Make the more relevant God? No. God needs to rewrite us. Yes. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So that rewriting of us, we have a word for it. We call it the new covenant. We've read about it in Jeremiah. We've read about it in Ezekiel. We've read about it in the um, apostolic writings. But that is basically the rewriting of us that we change in the process. Yes, Rose? I noticed uh, I was reading in John yesterday that Christ referred to the uh, uh, Holy Days as Jews' feast, uh, that he wasn't going to go near the Jews because they sought to kill him. Uh, and so he wasn't going to be seen in those Holy Days, but he did go up to Jerusalem at the Tabernacles, but, um, and he did speak. But he referred to them as Jewish holy days. He didn't refer to them as God's holy days. Yeah. Why, why, why did he do that? Because of what they well, did in the Old Testament? By one, of, one, of the, one of the things that you can, you can see in that, and you see that expressed a number of times, and that's uh, because of the, the Jews, because of the Yahudim. Now, there's a couple of different ways that you can look at that, being that that expression is the way that they do it in Judea, in Judea, the way that they do things in Judea. Their, Judea runs the show. We're in the Galil. We're in the Galilee. So we're going to go down to the, do the things that the way they do it. The other way to look at it is kind of what you mentioned there related to what the prophets railed against. Now, Yeshua railed against that too railed against Israel, railed against Judah, what, the whole nation? The people in charge. They were, yes, he went into the temple, turned things over, was railed against, you know, called them the blind guides, etc., that were leading the people away, leading them down toward destruction. So, in a sense... You know, because you, you, you look in the sense of, of the Jewish this or that or the other. He's also speaking about everybody that he's also connected with, too. So you could look at that as being talking against yourself, which is the problem that people come into when they view Isaiah 1 and they say, well, see, when he says your feasts, he's talking about he's now basically kissed off all of the appointed times and shoved it over and said, okay, you can play with your toys over there, but just don't concern the people of God with them anymore. That's how some people will look at Isaiah chapter one. But when you see it in the book of Isaiah in its totality, from beginning to end, you see what has happened is that the people in charge have drug the worship of God down. They've mixed it in with the nations. They've corrupted it. And they've drugged the people down with it. So, a lot of what the prophets Isaiah talk about is the heavenly reset button being hit on Israel. That it is going to be restarted, rebooted, to use modern vernacular. Rebooted up and made better. It's being rebooted with a 
upgraded operating system. You know, if you have Israel 1.0, you've got Israel 2.0. And Israel 2.0 has the Messiah upgrade, if you want to keep beating this metaphor to death. That is what has brought it fuller. Now, you might say that there was the placeholder with Israel 1. The Messiah was going to bring this in and to bring it to its fullness. But that was not actually put into effect yet. But just as you prepare yourself for an addition to the house, you don't just slap something onto it. So... (laughs) Well, some people might might slap an addition onto their house, but uh, if you actually put some forethought and planning into it, it works out, what, a lot better, a lot better, yes. So this is just like we don't have a blundering God who works with creation. We don't have a blundering God that works with Israel, the people of God. This is not, you know, the... Old Testament God, New Testament God, Plan A God, Plan B God, sort of thing that you can see some people get the caricature of. And so like when you see in Leviticus 24, you see this interesting aspect where it starts out talking about the menorah, then it talks about the table of bread, showbread, as it's also called, the bread of the presence. We talked about earlier with the architecture of the tabernacle and, and late Exodus. But you see the beginning parts, you could really kind of almost contrast this with this talk about capital punishment and the name of God and blaspheming God at the last part of it as a lot of the same sort of the topic. You can almost look at it as like a light for the world versus darkness for the world. Because you'll notice right at the end of chapter 24, it comes right back around to where it started where it started before about the name of God. So with the menorah, like we've talked about with Exodus and the construction of the menorah previously, this is something that you see expressed as being a demonstration of how heaven sees the world, sees Israel specifically. The eyes of God are searching, the people of God searching the earth to see what? to see what is actually happening, what people are doing. And then with the showbread, those are the 12 loaves, which we've talked about with previously with this in Exodus. The table of bread, 12 loaves, 12 tribes. So talking about the, the production of the people of God, what their body, what they really are made up with. So... Remember the architecture of the tabernacle. You've got the menorah on one side, the table, the bread of the presence on the other side. The light of the menorah shining on the table of bread. So the eyes of God watching the production, the people, the the body of God. So you could say also that the bread could represent a bit of how Israel responds to this light. What are the deeds of Israel to the light that has been given Israel? The light of the testimony of God. What have they done with it? You see the, the prophecy when we get into Deuteronomy, 
and also the latter part of Leviticus will see that as well. But you see in Deuteronomy, the last few chapters, where there is the foretelling of what is going to happen, what the people of God are going to do with the light of God. It's going to go off the rails. And then God is going to hit the reset button. But then God is going to bring the people of God, reboot them back in. And they will be a beacon for the nations in the process. That's what you see again and again through the prophets. There is the reboot of the people of God and then brought back to do what? To be a beacon. And what is, okay, so we see like the people of God, the bread. What about the crumbs, so to speak, of the bread of the presence? What is one of the most powerful things that we as the crumbs of the bread of the presence have in the world around us? How we have been born again. Just like Israel, our generation that, of ourselves that died in the desert, the one that was freed out of the house of bondage, our old way of life, as Paul calls it, the old man or the old person, and then the new person, the new man, the one that enters into the land on the other side. That is one of the most powerful things that you can show people because they can see it. If they knew who you were like before, then they see who you are like now. They go, wow, something fantastic has happened. We want more of that. It's one of the most powerful testimonies there is. So, you know, when we think of the testimony, the tablets of the testimony, the testimony of God that is received there at Sinai, we think of all that as just download. But one of the witnesses of the tabernacle is that it is not only download into people, but it is also distributed around from one crumb to the next and from those crumbs into the world around. Uh, yes, Alex, well. I'm sitting here trying to reconcile this perfection that is expected at the altar. Yes. And, uh, you know, and then even mentioning lepers, and then Yeshua reaches out to the lepers. So somewhere in this whole thing is a demonstration of what it's, what it's like way up there. And, but at the same time, Yeshua did reach out to what a lot of us see down here right that's I mean, correct down here at this level so it's that's that's correct but one of the things that you see exemplified especially in these instructions for the priesthood is that the the work and the servants of the people of god are of the other is one of the things that you see in history that those in priesthoods of various deities end up what Rich, basically pilfering and pocketing. That's a common thing where they're talking about ancient Egypt, where they're talking about Babylonia, Assyria, the Akkadians. It's a familiar thing. The priesthood are always just robbing 
And is this also why in some of the historical books they'll talk about at one point in Christianity they were saying that was Israel's God. That's a different God that we have in the New Testament. They they literally would Yeah, that was that was one of the actually the, the earliest heresies <laughs> that was put forward was that there was basically a plan A God and then a plan B God. So that was one of the things that was addressed. Now we could say well, maybe they brought in a different form of it by saying there is the stuff that was abolished and then the stuff that continues, that that's a, a soft form of plan A God, plan B God. But there was at least the acknowledgement earlier on that that is a heresy, that is something that is corrupting the word of God, which is, you might say, that is a point of conversation with our brothers and sisters in the body of God. So... And a form of the uh, Kalvachomer argument that we've talked about a lot of times that's talked about in Hebrews a lot. So the form of it would be, well, you accept that this idea of a, there was a God that's in the Old Testament totally different than the God that's in the New Testament. You accept that that is just not reality here, right? Okay, well then, how much more if there is this one across, and you see lots of examples, including out of Yeshua's own mouth there in the Sermon on the Mount, that this is not going to be a change. There's going to be a continuum across of how this relationship between heaven and earth is going to work. Well, then how much more then is there a continuum rather than a div dividing line between Malachi and Matthew? So, that is a point of discussion. And I've had it with people that have realized that there is a bit of a, a big tension that is going on inside your head. You know, I was talking with a pastor once, you know, and explaining about how Galatians actually fits into Leviticus. And after the end of it, and he's, he was saying, well, I, I see what you're saying, that really this, Paul is just talking about the same thing, but my mind just wants to go right back to, and I said, well, okay, you're starting to acknowledge what the, what the issue is here, is that you're starting to see that, that the problem is not with the word of God, that there is this new thing that is supplanting and abolishing the old thing, but rather it is the way that people have interpreted this as being an new abolishing old. So, it's like, great. And <laughs> interestingly enough, it took several years, but that pastor came around and is moving closer and closer towards Shabbat. So, praise God. But it's one of those things where you just have to, okay, you're, you're realizing that there is a tension going on here, and it's not, you know, it's not the Old Testament fighting New Testament here. There is how we are looking at this as being a wall of separation, so to speak, between Old Testament and New Testament. Yes, Anne. Yeah, um, I just remember the scripture Jesus said to the Syrophoenician woman, or the Syrophoenician woman said to Jesus, the crumbs off the table of the Jewish people, um, even the dogs eat the crumbs from off the table. So, I mean, it's like, 
okay, so there is no dichotomy. I mean, that um, Jew and Gentile are the same. Um, I don't know how that connected there. but Well, actually, <laughs> you, 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 bring up a, you bring up a very interesting point, and that is what the, the, um, the testimony of Israel to the nations was supposed to be like was supposed to be that people would want to get those crumbs, so to speak, that came off of the table of Israel and want more, be hungry for more, rather than, you know, what you see in the prophets where, <laughs> where the Lord gets angry and says, my name is blasphemed among the nations because of you. So is that the people hungry for the crumbs that fall off the master's table? No. They don't want to have anything to do with you. It is something that you'll hear a number of people will say today. It's like, well, if your God is anything like these people I've met over there at the church, I don't have anything to do with them. So that is something that we see this testimony is not just download, but it's download and distribute. So thus you see like the menorah and the table, the, the bread of the presence. You know, is the presence of God there with the bread, with the deeds of Israel? And then are those deeds of Israel feeding, so to speak, the world around? Or is it just molding? So the interesting thing that you see with this, this comparison at uh, the last part of chapter 24, the capital crime of basically dragging down the name or the name of life, this name that brings life. That is such a crime for the world that you could say a crime against humanity, that the perpetrator's life is forfeit for the sake of all. Because when you think about okay, you have the creator of heaven and earth is coming to save the world from itself, to turn the world back. How is that going to happen if people don't even know who the creator of heaven and earth is? Because it could be, it could go like the way of just the day of the Lord happens, people are just freaked out and you see that that is going to be the case, where people will just get be freaked out and want, as it talks about the rocks, to fall on them, to hide them from. But for those others that do see, hey, there is something about the kingdom of God. We've heard God's with you. They grab on, they grab hold. So there are those that are running, hiding, want to hide, as it talks about there in like <laughs> John chapter 3, you know, like cockroaches running, running for the shadows because they don't want the light of the creator of heaven and earth to be shining on them because their deeds are evil. And they know that they're evil. Then there are those that realize, wow, there is a better way to live. And we see that from the loaf scale down to the crumb scale. You know, if you around here down at the our local gospel missions and stuff, you'll see those stories, and there are the different reactions of people. They come in, they just want a meal, they want some food, they want a place to crash. 
Then there are those that realize after the meal and after crashing, they're like, I don't want to live like this anymore. So they go and they reach out for a different way because they hear that from the people who came in the door just like them years earlier and say, wow, you, you can actually go a different way in life. So that is one of the great testimonies that we have, that it can be a different way to go. But if there is no testimony out there, there is no name of God in the world, the reputation of God, what are people going to go after? Just as Paul talks about groping around in the darkness. Greeks had ideas. The Confucians had some ideas. The Buddhists had some ideas about this and that. Stumbled in, blundered into aspects and characteristics of God, even though, as Paul puts it, you know, you're worshiping the unknown God. You sort of know there's something out there, but don't really have a clear picture of what and who that is versus a revelation of who that God is. I can, I can teach you. I can show you who this is. Be like the disciples who would say, hey, come and see. To be like that Samaritan woman that said, hey, I met someone who told me everything about me. And then she got other people curious. What's happening? What's happened to her? Come and see. So, one of the things we'll focus on here today, and it's really a kind of a key thing since we're here now in the 28th day, kicking down towards uh, Shavuot, the day of Pentecost. So we're past the halfway point towards 50, 28th day of the count. And in Leviticus 23, we see this great overview. So if you're ever talking with people and want to say, well, what are these appointed times of God? Well, 23 of Leviticus, that chapter is a good primer for what these appointed times are kind of gives you the rough outline of what they are and one of the things to we talked about that these are his appointments his appointed times and places and from the very words that we have of moed it's variously translated as a appointed time a place or a meeting because ed is a time and moed is you could roughly say the place of the time, meaning this is a specific time, not just any time, because it's that the word uh, ed, the you know, the ayin and the dalit together, we, we get that from le'olam va'ed, you know, over the horizon or forever and ever, and forever and a time beyond that. So moed is the place of a time, meaning this is a specific time that is put aside for this. And we also, uh, some ways that linguists have come up, the derivation on this of ed coming from the verb ud, meaning to return or to go about, to repeat or do it again. 
So that's where you get the, you'll hear people say that these are rehearsals. These are things that you repeat until you, these are practice, going to practice if you're a musician to learn the piece of music, to get it down, to work on it. Because I know that when I go to a music practice, I learn a whole lot about what I don't know. (laughs) It becomes quite clear, okay, I don't know this as well as I think I did. And then you go around and you say, oh, okay, well, I, I figured that out. And, you know, when I was at music practice this past Thursday night, <laughs> there was this one song. And when you, when you talk about the things that continually hammer you, there was this one particular chord progression, and it sounds like you should go back to a certain chord. But when you actually listen and you see the music written out by the person who actually wrote it, you say, no, you don't go back to that chord even though I've been playing it that way for probably a decade. So it took a lot to say, okay, here it comes around again. Here comes that chord. Don't play it. So, and it took several times through that song to actually get it into my skull that no, even though I think it belongs there, it doesn't actually belong there. So that is, you could say, a call of home air moment. So just like with a piece of music, by rehearsing it, by practicing it, you go around and you see the things that, you know, you, you get reacquainted with the song, you, you love it, you go around again, you discover the things that you're doing wrong, that you didn't quite get right. Maybe you also get some aha moments that you say, I didn't see that the last time I went around. <laughs> happened to me in high school that um, when we were prepping for a <laughs> for a talent show um the band i had in high school we, we picked out a song but the problem was we had one song and after three months of practicing the same song over and over and over again it ends up being like a month before we like we cannot play the song one more time so we threw out the song and got a new song in with only one month left to actually do it because we had done it so much we hated it so that's actually what you see in the prophets where you'll see that uh, especially like in ezekiel you'll see that we're saying well why do you hate my things why do you hate my offerings why do you hate my appointed times so for those of the people that were closest to God, the priesthood, they had just gone through and it's like, okay, here we go round again. Get this over with. Get this over with. Rather than, okay, what can I learn and get new out of this? Like we go through these Torah portions every year. Every year. We can just gloss over there, blah, 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 blah. Get it over with and move on to the next one. Or we can say, there is something in here that I did not see before. Where is it? There's got to be something in here I haven't seen before. It's always marveling when you go through um, some of the very ancient commentaries, whether you're talking about the Jewish sages, whether you're talking about some of the early church fathers and stuff, and you just see this is the same passage, and people have been pouring over the same thing for thousands of years. And you're like, wow, I didn't see that there before. That just comes through looking at something 
and just saying, there's got to be something in here that I'm not seeing and just diving into it to see what it is. And that's what these appointed times are. They're reminders of that, the various aspects of God, but they're also reminders of where we were the last time we were going through it. Just like with music, you know, when you hear a song, what does it do? Brings back a memory. That's right. It brings back a memory, which is great, and it's also dangerous because you you mix a catchy tune with a lot of um, rhetorical effluent, and you can have people remembering garbage for decades, and people just singing along with. They have no idea what it is that they're <laughs> they're singing along with. They're like, yeah, so. That is one of the, the good reminders that these things are about rehearsals is that they are times to remember where you were the last time you heard this, but also what have you learned since the last time you heard it. So a, a, this is one particular overview of all of the, the festivals here. Um, for example, with just going over the Moedim or the appointed times, the appointments of God that are in chapter 23 of Leviticus. You've got Shabbat, and one possible way that you can see the Messianic fulfillment in this is that Shabbat is a picture of the kingdom of heaven. And that's why you've got that an ancient um, Jewish song, Yom Shekelot Shabbat, is the day that is always Shabbat, which is a, it's a microcosm for the Messianic era. That is, Messianic era is described in rabbinical literature as the day that is always Shabbat. Now, I know when you're younger growing up, it's like, when is Shabbat ever going to end? Because you, don't, you haven't learned to love it, learned to yearn for it over time. But when you actually get into that world of six days you will work, yes, that work part, wow, Shabbat is, is definitely a gift. So that picture of the never-ending Shabbat, that picture that's, you know, you just don't endure through Shabbat. You endure because of Shabbat. And that taking Shabbat into the rest of your life, where your experience of God just doesn't happen on Shabbat, it persists on through the week. And with uh, Chag Pesach or uh, Passover, the Feast of Passover, one picture that we just went through during Passover is remembering about Yeshua's death, the covering of sins, transgressions, and iniquities, and of resurrection, new life. Something we celebrated with the next one that's mentioned in there, the Omer or the Bikarim, uh, for first fruits, picture of the resurrection, a reminder of that. And then we're Looking forward to this, we'll pass the halfway point towards uh, Chag Shavuot, or the Feast of Pentecost. And one way that you can see the Messianic fulfillment is the, of the giving of the Spirit. And what is that? It is to be able to live out the ways of God. We talked about that earlier. Yes, that you're not just left in Romans chapter 7, what wretched man that I am. Who can save me from this body of death? God doesn't leave you there, just sitting at the base of Sinai going, oh, oh, you know, here comes the, the, 
heaven is about ready to push the smite button on me. No. That's right. Yeshua said, never leave you or forsake you. And that is something that we, we, we talked about with the movement of the tabernacle. Remember the, the praying of, you know, when the cloud move up from the tabernacle, there would be the prayer. And then when you go and the cloud stops, it's like, return to us. So this expectation of, you know, that you are never left alone throughout this. And uh, Yom Teruah, the day of blowing trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, a picture of the last trumpets, Yeshua's return, the wake-up call before the day of the Lord. Yom HaKippurim, or the day of atonement, judgment day. And uh, Chag Sukkot, or the feast of booths, the feast of tabernacles, picture of the coming of the kingdom of heaven. So that picture that the dwelling place of God is with mankind. And then the tail end of that, Shemini Atzeret, the eighth day, the world to come, the world made new. And you see a little snippet of that in the particular passage we're looking at here today with that just mentioned in passing about the offering remaining with the mother for seven days. Then on the eighth day, kind of moving into the new realm. You see that with the livestock, you see that with, with children, with male boys, circumcised on the eighth day. Again, this picture of eight, 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 seven, then eight, seven, then eight, seven, then eight. This picture of reaching a completion, seven, then going on into the new phase of eight. And that was actually quite an ancient observation that was brought forward um, by an early church father who took that lesson a little bit too far with the picture of seven and eight and the eighth day to be the meaning that uh, the, the law of God reached its seven at the cross and then the eighth day is now into the realm of the, you could say, the uh, people of God uh, post-law have moved on. That was a heresy in and of itself. So uh, Justin Martyr was one who, like his name implies, was willing to die for the kingdom of God, but then also took one little aspect of the law of God, but misapplied it, <laughs> and it became the basis for um, the teaching of the abolishing of the law of God. Yes, Piran? I have a question about eight, um, as there's no numbers in Hebrew. Um, but the symbol eight for us is like an infinity symbol. Is there any research on that? Because well, it's called it's called uh, shemeni, which is also the word the same root of shaman, which means fullness. It's also shemen, which is also fat or oil. So the idea of you're reaching an overabundance of things—that's the picture. So with shava is for seven, which is also used for oath. So an oath, take it to the bank. It is a commitment. It is going to happen. And then shemen is something that's overflowing. Where do we get our numbers from? Because Roman numbers aren't. Arabic is where, Arabic. Is where so the, there might be the letters a, come from. A significance to having an eight. 
infinite? I that's a question I have not ever looked into. Where the um, how those uh, Arabic numerals came came into being and what they started out from to begin with. So that's that's an interesting question of uh, where where those where those came from. <laughs> it's kind of interesting being in in uh, in Asian culture. There's like there's a a Chinese counting system which is somewhat similar to like our you know the hash numbers you know one two three four slash it's similar to that but you build a Chinese character in the process of it so it's like you know and of course Koreans can do it like fast and know where what number it's actually represented but you know for a Westerner you're looking at that what is that but that's just the way of representing a number anciently so. It almost almost looks like cuneiform when you're <laughs> uh, looking at it. So, yeah, that's a that's a good question. I have to really take a look at that one. So, when we look at uh, Shavuot, it's an important thing to remember because one of the things you'll you'll see in tradition tradition says that this is connected to the giving of the Torah at Sinai. And in previous times, we've gone through and there's some of the time indicators in the process that indicate, yeah, this is around about the time you reach the mountain and around about the time where the cloud is coming down on the mountain, etc. So you could say it's about in the, in the ballpark of where that happened. But there's also a lot of specific language things in there that indicate a connection between the instructions of God, the giving the instructions of God, and the uh, time there at uh, Sinai. So some of the specific ones that we'll be taking a quick look at uh, relates to what we'll be actually looking about in the next Torah reading there in uh, Bihar, but we'll get a preview of things. We'll be probably looking at that perhaps in more detail um, next Sabbath, but here in, in particular is the uh, Passage here from Leviticus 23, verses 15 and 16. You shall also count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day when you brought in the sheaf of the wave offering, there shall be seven complete Sabbaths. Um, and that is Shabbatot. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. And uh, Tammy, you have your hand up. I've been trying to speak and it won't oh, let me speak. Sorry, I, I had the uh, the mute button on. I apologize. Okay. Yeah, I was just going to go back to the thing about the Arabic numbers. Is yes. that the Arabic numbers might have a profound meaning in Arabic, but when uh -huh. you translate them to English, they're not going to have that same profound meaning. Ah. Okay. Yeah. That's um that's one of those very in Interesting things, like I was mentioning with the, the Chinese characters that represent a number that outside of knowing what that character actually means, it doesn't actually mean anything for people who don't know it. I mean, if we were to, uh, heaven forbid, become a vassal state of China, we might be counting with those numbers. So, and those characters might actually mean something to us. But for right now, we look at them and they don't mean anything. So. So th thank you for bringing that up, Tammy. So one of the things to, to note here in this Leviticus 23 passage in, fi um, 
in verses 15 and 16 is that the companion passage for this over in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 19, where it talks about the seven complete Sabbaths or the um, Shavitz Tamim uh, Shabbatot, rendered there in Deuteronomy 16, 19 as the Shiva Shavuot or the seven uh we say seven sevens because Shavuot could just mean sevens. It just means a grouping of sevens. Also used in other places and contexts as, as a seven-day period of weeks, but really specifically it just means sevens. So the companion passage for this we'll be taking a look at next Shabbat, but preview of coming attractions in Leviticus 25, verses 8 and 9. You're also to count off seven Shabbats, or the Shabbatot of years for yourself, seven times seven years, so that you have the time of seven Sabbaths of years, namely 49 years. Then you shall sound a ram's horn abroad on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the Day of Atonement, you shall sound a horn throughout all your land. Now, that's very significant because there's also the connection, not just between Shabbatot, but also of <laughs> Yobel, or the sound of the horn. It's, it's translated as shofar. So that sounding of the shofar to declare the start of the Yobel, or the Jubilee year, and this sounding of the shofar there at Sinai are also connected together. So you get this connection of the Yobel, the declaring of the year of release, and also there of declaring the testimony of God. And Places where that's described in Leviticus uh, verse 25, verses 9 and 10, Exodus 19, 13, and Joshua 6, verses 4 and 5. So Leviticus 25, 9 and 10, you will sound a ram's horn. So you will sound the shofar abroad on the 10th day of the 7th month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the horn against shofar again. Throughout all your land, you shall thus then consecrate the 50th year and proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee or a yobel for you. For each of you shall return to his own property. Each of you shall return to his own family. And in Exodus 19.13, when the ram's horn or the yobel sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So that's the preview of preview of uh, the time at Sinai with Exodus chapter 20 and the giving of the Ten Commandments. So then, at Jericho, Jericho, you know, Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, and the walls come tumbling down. So, in Joshua chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, also, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up, every man straight ahead. So again, you've got this picture of the same sort of language that you see around the mountain, this, the coal, the voice, the sound of a trumpet. But you get some of that strange language at, uh, <laughs> at Sinai of the 
sound of a voice, which is what we say the the sound of thunder is how it's commonly translated, but literally it's the sound of a voice or the this the sound of a of a torch, another way that that's described, which the sound of a torch sounds a lot like what Acts chapter two with the torches coming down on tops of people's heads, the fire, those lights appearing above people's heads, the tongues of fire. So you see that this gets connected between these passages on the Yobel and the passages at Sinai with seven times seven, seven times seven. So surety on top of surety, things reaching completeness around things reaching completeness but then flowing over to 50, 49, 7 times 7, and then flowing over into 50. So Shavuot, 7 complete Shabbatot, plus one day, the Yobel, 7 complete Shabbatot of years. So we'll be looking at that next uh, Torah cycle about the uh, next Torah study on the Shemitah or the sabbatical year. And seven of those plus one year at the end of that and then at Jericho the the seven Yobelim or the voices over seven days plus one great shout with the seven <laughs> the seven uh, priests so get seven 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 taking all that and spilling over that so you see these common themes between all of them of the declarations of rest and restoration Shavuot, yes, it's about bringing in a harvest. Bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves. So you're bringing in the crops provided by the Lord, the maker of the sun, the water, and the plants. And you're bringing them in from a land that was provided by the Lord. So the Lord provides the land, the Lord provides the rain, the Lord provides the crops. He provides the increase, which is what tithe then is all about. Because you're celebrating that the Lord has you know, not only just brought in, replaced it from last year, but done what? Spilled over something beyond that. So you're not just breaking even, but you're spilling over on top of that. And with Jericho, this picture that you're really declaring just like at Sinai, it says, like, the land is mine. It just seems like a strange thing to just mention this. At Sinai, here you have the creator of heaven and earth making this huge entrance beyond what the entrance of the plagues, but huge entrance with the, the thunder and the voices, the trumpet, the sound of, the, of these trumpet blowing. And he's saying, the land is mine. Again, coming in, making this beachhead into the earth to say, hey, this land, it's not some pagan deities. You're not going to just have the creator of heaven and earth just over here in this land called Israel. And then you've got all these other weird deities in control of other things. No, you're having the creator of it all putting a presence down in a particular place and say, this is mine. But it's not going to just stay there. It is going to do what? Expand. Expand beyond 
the borders to the point where you see the, the great picture of the Messianic era is that this would be not just some sort of phenomena you, you watch on the news and go, huh, those crazy people over there in Jerusalem, there they go again. No, this is not going to be what the Messianic era is all about. Eventually, it is going to do what in the entire world? It is going to be take up the whole world. So thus, you see the same thing that has happened at Sinai is now happening specifically there at Jericho, where the Lord is saying, this land is mine. And the, these strong walls fall flat at just the sound of the voice. That the sound of heaven is just going to make those walls that the people were trusting in fall flat before. So that's where we'll you know, wrap things up here today. Any last thoughts as, as we close out? Uh, next, next week we're going to be you know, con- continuing on, with, which is usually a, a double header, but this particular year they're splitting them apart for the uh, Bahar and the Bechukotai. Those are going, um, so next week we're going to be going over basically chapter 25. And then the following week, uh, chapters 26 and through 27. Any last uh, thoughts as we close things out? Hopefully you can see in this that the celebration that's encapsulated at Shavuot is a part of the same thing. It's not just, oh, hey, something happened there and it's recorded in Exodus and then something happened in Acts chapter 2. And, ha, huh, that's funny. It happened on the same day. Huh, what, what are the chances that that could happen? You know, the Israel blundered into this day and then blundered into some other day. Is that the picture that we have? The, the picture of the blundering God? No, that is not the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is not blundering. The name of the Lord is precision and exactness and long-suffering and also endurance, perfection. Yes. Uh, go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I would, I would think in this day and age, you'll see more of that come into the Christians' a viewpoint because uh, it hasn't been that many years that the Catholic Church or the Pope has um, held it over his people. I mean, until a few decades ago, you, um, you had to do what he said, and uh, they don't very well anymore so i mean they they've separated that uh those original traditions they they made a conscious effort a long time ago and uh i i think just the that that figurehead does not hold the authority he had even as i said just a few decades ago so um i think it's a good time All right, well, we'll close things out with prayer. Father God, we thank you and praise you for giving us the great blessings of this time of Shavuot, and we just ask that you prepare us to be part of your harvest, that you prepare us, that we can be your crumbs in the world, that we can be the great bread of your presence in the world around us. And Father, we thank you for 
all of these things that you give us. In the name of your Son, Yeshua. Amen. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.